I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending June 14th. Today we'll be talking about RISC-V, a free and open processor architecture. We examine the potentially profound consequences RISC-V might have for the smartphone market. We'll also be talking about engineering education. We've heard about the need for STEM education, but the required skill set for engineering has expanded in unexpected ways. We've also got a report on chiplets. With Moore's Law coming to an end, one way to compensate might be to create a system whereby manufacturers can assemble a microprocessor from a set of processor subsystems, chiplets. First up, RISC-V. Qualcomm is a leading supplier of the chips that go into smartphones. European correspondent Nitin Dahad wrote a story about Qualcomm investing in Sci-5, a hard-charging little startup that has expertise in RISC-V technology. International editor Junko Yoshida caught up with Nitin to discuss what RISC-V is and what Qualcomm's investment in Sci-5 might portend. Hi, Nitin. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I've just arrived in Zurich. What's happening in Zurich? So um, the RISC-V workshop is happening here in Zurich. Uh, so I've decided for the first time to attend one of these. So I'm going to be attending it over the next couple of days. Excellent. All right. So I think I've come to the right person to ask this question because I think uh, uh, last Friday you filed a story about Sci-5 getting uh, Qualcomm's investment. So Qualcomm's investment in Sci-5 what does it tell us about the state of RISC-V and more importantly about Sci-Five? I think it means RISC-V is coming of age. Uh, I had a conversation at Computex uh, in which a major chip industry investor was asking about the merits of RISC-V and whether it really can be deployed more widely. What I think uh, this investment from Qualcomm now does is it's publicly saying, uh, well, actually Qualcomm did publicly say it wants to exploit the full potential of the RISC-V architecture in wireless and mobile. And I think this is a key thing uh, for the RISC-V architecture. Right. Okay. So, you know, this is my opinion, but it seems like Navid Shawani, president and CEO of Sci-5, he is a tireless promoter of his own business. Nothing wrong with it, you know, all the more power to him. But in your story, you quoted him claiming Sci-5 having just achieved 101 design wins. I read in LinkedIn today, he was talking about the 102nd design win he's, he's onto or something like that. Is Sci-5 a chip company or an IP company? I'm a little confused. Just from what I remember from my days at Arc, uh, I think you can you can sort of uh, put the numbers out and, you know, it, it, the design win can mean it's very advanced or it might be just a you know, very early stage or it might be just a, some concept. So anyway, uh, coming back to your question, this is where the perception seems to flip-flop. You know, some people tell me Sci-5 is pushing IP and Navid has been talking about both. Exactly. But when I most recently spoke to him at Cambridge, in the UK, um, he categorically told me he wants to be a silicon company. He told me they'll do 100 million US dollars in revenue this year, and 75% of that will come from silicon and 25% from IP licensing. Wow. I did not think that. That's interesting. So I know that Navid doesn't mince his words when he talks about current IP licensing models out there on the market today. What problems is he seeing in it? And uh, what promises is he making to fix that problem? His core message uh, is, you know, you can do a a chip very quickly. 
And he says the, the reason you can't at the moment is it takes too long to negotiate IP license contracts, say, with multiple vendors if you've got you know, a chip with multiple IP blocks. Mm. And also, if a designer needs to make changes, then it can often require renegotiation of the license or licenses. Right. He claims Sci-Fi's model addresses this head-on, with all the IP from the, its IP partners residing within uh, the templates they provide in the cloud. So the designer doesn't need to negotiate licenses in the first place with multiple IP vendors. So that that sort of accelerates his ability to sort of do the chip. I see. I'm just wondering, am I the only one thinking that Rix 5 Consortium is kind of overshadowed by Sci-5? Or Sci-5 stealing all the thunders from Risk 5 What do you think? What's your take? Um it's very interesting, and I'm going to take it to another level. Sci Five is certainly stealing all the limelight, uh, spending a lot of its 125 million US dollars or so that investors have put into it on its traveling roadshow in almost every corner of the world, you know, over 50 plus events. I'm sure the investors are happy, you know, with this profile building. Uh, this in turn raises its valuation for an exit. That's the norm with companies that raise a lot of money. Look at Graphcore in the UK. Yeah, companies like this, they raise a lot of money looking for an accelerated path to an exit. Yeah. But in Risk Five, I think there are many other emerging vendors. And I think we'll see them also raising money and profile on the back of this sci-fi funding. Yeah. I hope to meet a few of them at the Risk Five workshop in, uh, here in Zurich, Switzerland this week. All right. So we look forward to your follow-up uh, stories. Well, thanks for your time, Nitin. Thank you. After recording the segment you just heard, Nitin wrote another story on a company called Andy's Technology, one of the RISC-V specialists offering engineers a way to try RISC-V development for free. Read it on eetimes.com. The world needs more engineers. We expected that would include more IC designers, but we were surprised. This week, we presented a set of articles that examine engineering employment and engineering education. Our main article finds out that in some categories, the electronics industry needs fewer design engineers, not more. What does that mean for the engineering profession moving forward? We've been told that we need a laser focus on STEM skills, science, technology, engineering, math. But as we investigated, we discovered the electronics industry needs a much wider variety of skills, including communication skills, collaboration skills, business skills, and subject matter expertise. And all of that is beginning to get integrated into engineering programs. George Leopold is our editor based in Washington, D.C. His contribution to our employment and education special project was on that very subject, so we invited him on for a chat. So how are you doing, George? Good, Brian. Good to be with you. You recently took a trip out to Olin College. Tell us what you found there. Well, it's, uh, the school was started uh, in about 1997, and the whole idea was that the, the people who founded it thought uh, engineering education's Probably too narrow. We need to expand it. And not only did they expand beyond math and science, but they added things like arts and humanities. So that would, that's certainly a different twist. But I think they see that as a way to promote uh, more innovation, as particularly as uh, a lot of their graduates move into software areas. Uh, small school, only 90 students per class, 360 total. And uh, they've got a heavy uh, emphasis on ethics and context as well. They want their students to think about the consequences of the technologies that they're creating, unintended and intended consequences. So uh, we think uh, 
uh, it, it offers a nice framework for possibly the, uh, for the future of education and engineering. Well, that fits into some of the coverage that we've had here in EE Times over the past few months, uh, talking about a bias, um, bias that might be built into the product itself, but especially with artificial intelligence, where the assumptions that you bring for training the AI um, might have some inherent bias. So I imagine the program like, uh, like what they have it all in uh, would help uh, focus people on that that set of concerns. Yeah, uh, that's a primary example of, of I think the types of things they wanna they want to address in their training. Uh, one of the professors said their introductory math courses are almost like an architect studio. So they take a very different approach. And and this stuff is they emphasize is baked into the um, curriculum. It's not a bolt on, and that's been a problem some of the engineering education studies that have come out over the last year that it's sort of thrown in. But these guys actually want to make it integral to the to their curriculum. And, um, you know, I, again, I think it's something that's probably generational here. We're moving away from sort of the standard uh, engineering curricula to, to, you know, actually looking to see how this stuff's going to be used and what are the unintended consequences, AI being a classic example. So there's a... Um an expectation that a lot of what we're going to be needing moving forward in AI, machine learning, it's going to be a lot of coding, a lot of software engineering. Uh, the jobs look like they might be going to software. Um, and it's interesting what you just said about the curriculum at Olin. It sounds like uh, with the liberal arts integrated into it, um, when you're doing AI, you're going to need subject matter experts, right? Yep. So, yeah, they want to broaden broaden people's perspectives. So, uh, we have a contributed article by uh, an assistant professor at Olin, a woman named Allison Woods. And she told me uh, her background is in theater arts, and now she's teaching engineering. So that sort of gives you uh, an idea of, of where they're coming from, very different from sort of the MITs and Stanfords of the world. Uh, so another thing I wanted to point out, Brian, is is that we seem to be sort of missing this Sputnik moment in, in American education. You know, in 57, the Russians launched Sputnik, and we realized we got to catch up. So we really emphasized math and science, engineering, STEM. And, you know, in some ways we found in, in some of the stories we're doing for this package that STEM has just sort of become a slogan. And I don't know that we've necessarily – delivered on it, then, you know, maybe the E in STEM should stand for ethics as well as uh, engineering. Well, it also sounds like uh, if the Olin approach seems to be the way engineering is going, an emphasis on STEM might be inadequate. Right. Uh, maybe perhaps it should be, as uh, Dave Vasco from Rockwell uh, recently told me, maybe it should be STEAM, add an A for the arts. <laughs> right. So let's look at, uh, let me ask you about this. What should we look at with um, engineering moving forward, specifically engineering education? Yeah. Uh, should it focus on, you know, software, AI, ethics, liberal arts, collaborative uh, abilities, communications, the ability to, to work in teams and be able to tell people what it is you're doing with what you're making? Yeah, the heavy emphasis at schools that uh, like Olin. In fact, they look for they look for uh, collaborative skills 
uh, the ability to work in teams, to, to, to work on projects like robotics with systems integration, solving the right problems, not just identifying the problem and coming up with a solution. So, um, yeah, th those are the types of things they're trying to, they're, they're trying to bake into their curriculum. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. And the other thing, of course, is like, you know, it's like technology. This approach has to be scaled up. Right now, it's only being used at, uh, you know, smaller schools. Olin's only only offers undergraduate degrees. So the trick will be to how you scale this up to big schools, MIT, Stanford, the big engineering schools, their graduate programs, their postgraduate uh, programs as well. Although I'm told that um, a lot more engineering students aren't going to grad school because the job market's pretty good. And I guess the quite one of the questions we raise is, if you do get a job, is it you know are you going to get a full time job or is it going to be a gig? So that's another issue for us. Absolutely, a lot of different changes in engineering, engineering employment, and engineering education all coming up. Thank you, George, for being here with us. Good to be with you, Brian. And we'll have you back soon. Moore's Law is petering out. One of the more curious approaches to keeping Moore's Law going is called chiplets. It used to be that if a system manufacturer needed a processor, its best option was to buy a big, highly integrated monster of a chip from one vendor. But now manufacturers all have specialized needs. One size processor does not fit all. The idea behind chiplets is for all the chip vendors to break down their big monsters and make processor subsystems instead. Those are the chiplets. That would give the manufacturer the option to assemble a processor out of the chiplets from different vendors as best suit its needs. Each assemblage of chiplets would act as if it were one single chip. Well, that's the idea anyway. How far along the chiplet path are we really? Dylan McGrath has the story. This week I had the chance to drop in to uh, attend a workshop of the Open Domain Specific Architectures Industry Working Group, which is part of the Facebook-backed Open Compute Project. This group is working on advancing an open chiplet ecosystem and has proposed a protocol for chiplet interfaces. Not having followed the day-to-day -day development of this industry group or the growing pains of this open chiplet ecosystem movement, I was on one hand surprised by how far along this development seems to be in many ways, but on the other hand I was really kind of awestruck by how far this still has to go before we get anywhere near the sort of utopia of a future where people are just kind of taking different chiplets from different sources, manufactured by different foundries, in many cases at different process technology nodes, and slapping them all together in a plug-and-play type of way in a single package. There really is so much that is still needed, including standards, tools, and really entire new business models to make this all work. There are a lot of questions about how companies involved will be compensated, who will be responsible for what. There's a long way to go. But I had the opportunity to sit down at the workshop with Ramuni Nagasetti, who is a senior engineer and director of the process and product integration for Intel's technology development group. She has really led much of the work being done at Intel around chiplets. She enlightened me quite a bit in many ways, including describing what she believes are the two most significant technical hurdles to an open chiplet ecosystem. Testing and the ability to ensure known good die and the thermal challenges associated with cramming more board-level components into a system and package. 
Despite all the work that clearly needs to be done, I was very surprised to hear Ramuni say that the whole development of an open chiplet ecosystem is really coming together quite quickly and is going to look a lot different uh, over the next three to five years. She told me that the ramp is very slow, but it's going to increase in pace as each standard and tool is put into place. Ramune and a number of other prominent technologists that I met at the workshop are very bullish on this chiplet ecosystem. That is something that will be in place over the next handful of years. And of course, this could dramatically change the way that advanced devices are created. Dylan also collaborated on a story with Barb Jorgensen, our colleague from EPS News, about the trade war with China. Huawei is one of the biggest customers for a lot of U.S. high-tech companies. Dylan and Barb report that financial analysts are saying the Trump administration's ban on Huawei is going to hit the Chinese company's many U.S. suppliers where it hurts the most, their bottom lines. Investors are spooked, too. The stocks of some of those U.S. companies are getting dinged. Since Dylan and Barb filed their story, Reuters reported that Tokyo Electron, a major global supplier of equipment used to make chips, will comply with the ban. President Donald Trump threatened Chinese President Xi Jinping with more tariffs if she declined to meet with him at the G20 meeting coming up in Japan, even though there was no indication from China that she wouldn't. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo threatened German Chancellor Angela Merkel that the U.S. would cease sharing intelligence with Germany if German companies were to do business with Huawei. Huawei announced it would press its patent rights with Verizon, saying the U.S. communications giant should pay it a billion dollars for use of over 230 Huawei patents. Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. This week's bit of tech history. 40 years ago this week, Texas Instruments introduced its Speak and Spell talking educational toy. Last week, I just happened to be chatting with one of the Speak and Spell's inventors. Gene France now leads a company called Octavo. He told me that he and his three co-inventors just got lucky getting the development of the Speak and Spell funded. While they were building it, they discovered that literally nobody wanted it. Not TI managers, not educators, not parents. Nonetheless, they got to finish the project because TI management neglected to create a clear reporting structure for them. So they were all but freelancing. And when they did get hauled in to report on their progress, they were the only team in the company coming in under budget. Kids, it turned out, loved the thing. The Speak and Spell is indisputably one of the greatest products in electronics history, helping to propel TI to an early leadership position in the new discipline of digital signal processing. And here's a bit of audio from the Speak and Spell. Correct. Now spell E E times one error. That is correct. You win. All these years later, it turns out it's got your number. Eight six seven five three oh nine. And that was your weekly briefing for the week ending June 14th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. Catch us here next week at EE Times on Air.